Please be seated. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke and find chapter 1 and verse 26. Our text will start in verse 26 and run through verse 38 this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And with the Word of God opened or being opened before us, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, who from the womb of Mary brought new life to Your people, grant to us Your Holy Spirit, that by hearing Your Word we might receive it by faith, and having been born again, might be Your sons and daughters for all eternity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you listen to it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired Word. Well, have you ever, ever, have you ever received shocking news? Some sort of shocking news has come your way. Uh, shocking news takes various forms. There's good and there's bad shocking news, of course. You won! That's great news. Well, I suppose it depends on what you've won, but all things being equal, shocking. We're pregnant! Hopefully not too shocking, shocking, it's cancer. It can be shocking news. I'm sorry, you didn't make it. Shocking. We've all gotten shocking news before, some of various degrees of severity. Sometimes shocking news is as simple as getting your exam back, isn't it, and finding out that you did better than you thought you did, or worse, 
than you thought you did. I see a couple knowing nods out there. One of my favorite shocks this time of year, prepare the booze, here we go, as winter draws nearer and we have to break out our winter jackets from the closet, have you ever stuck your hand in the pocket and felt around? I'm not talking about stiff tissues, talking about pulling out a $20 bill out of your pocket, you know that surprise? That's a great surprise, isn't it? We've all had shocks, shocking news, surprises. But in any case, whether they're good or bad, big or small, there's a sort of processing that takes place. What am I going to do with this? How can this be true? What's next? What should I do? And really, do I even care? Well, in our text today, we meet a young girl who receives what may be the most shocking news a person has ever received More shocking than any news you or I have ever received, and I dare say more shocking than any other news ever given, even in Scripture. This account is more shocking than discovering a burning bush that does not consume itself that happens to be the presence of God. This account is more shocking than God telling Jonah to go to his sworn enemies and proclaim repentance and forgiveness. It's more shocking than when the Lord told Israel they were going to be exiled from the land of promise, and even more shocking than when Cyrus said they could go home. Here we find a teenage girl, a virgin, being told that she will become pregnant and give birth to the very Son of God, and that her conception would happen by the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and causing her to be pregnant. She was told what to name the boy, who he would be, how he fulfills countless Old Testament promises, and even that her elderly cousin Elizabeth was also pregnant just as a proof that God could actually do this. And don't miss this part either. The news came from an angel. I mean, as if if a telegram had shown up, that would have been shocking enough. But an angel appears to her and says this. Do you remember what we read, what DeWitt read in Judges chapter 13, verse 6, when uh, Samson's mother goes to her husband and says, something like the angel of the Lord appeared to me, and it was very awesome. That was her description. Well, this morning, I want us to ask ourselves this question in light of of the shocking good news of Christmas. How should I respond to the shocking news of the birth of Jesus Christ? How should I respond to the reality that God took on flesh and became a baby? This morning, I want us to see three things about the good news, the shocking good news of Jesus' birth that ought to help us respond in the right way. The first thing we see is that God exalts the humble. God exalts the humble. Second, we'll see that God is both powerful and sovereign. God is powerful and sovereign over this entire event. And lastly, we'll see that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. Is there anything in this text that implies that Mary was particularly special? Of course there isn't. 
Aside from being a virgin leading up to her wedding night, which is almost unheard of in this day and age, she merely fits a description. She is a virgin girl who's betrothed to a guy with a common name, and she's from a little nowhere village in the northern part of Israel, Nazareth. Nothing about her says, Son of God should be born from this womb, right here, I've got the womb for the Son of God. Nothing about her screams, I deserve the favor of the Lord. Look at all I've accomplished in my young life. Nothing about her says, I really am worth a visit from one of only two named angels in all of Scripture. I think it's time for an angel to come visit me. Do we see anything about Mary in the text that suggests she's special of her own merits, of her own self? She's simply a young girl from a country town with nothing particularly special to commend about herself. She says so herself in verse 48. Look over at verse 48. After uh, the angel departs, which we just read, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, uh, and the baby who is within Elizabeth leaps for joy uh, when uh, she approaches this baby we know to be John the baptizer. Uh, And Mary begins to burst out in song, her Magnificat, beginning in verse 46. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She acknowledges her humble estate. She says, I'm not special. There's nothing about me that deserves this. There's nothing about me that, that commends me to God to have chosen me out of all the young ladies in the land. She is a humble young lady, humble in heart, of course, but she's also humble in the sense that she's not noteworthy at all. She merely fits a description. Virgin, betrothed, Nazareth. That's it. Yet she's the recipient of God's focused favor of His grace. Look at verse 28. Gabriel appears to her and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He goes on to say to her, Do not be afraid, in verse 30, Mary, you have found favor with God. Now, if anyone would have felt less favored and more alone and insignificant in all of history, Mary's it. Think about the circumstances in which she was born. 400 years of silence. 400 years without a word from God, not a peep, waiting, and not just waiting for the Messiah, waiting for anything, waiting for another prophet, waiting for another sign, waiting for another book of the Bible to be written, waiting 400 years of silence, not feeling very favored, is she? God's not on the regular just reaching out to her and sending her messages to let her know how things are going in heaven and what his plan is. She's got the Old Testament, 400 years of silence, and that's it. How about Roman oppression? Her people are literally enslaved, taxed workers. They're, some of them are even killed because of their uh, opposition to the Roman oppression and occupation. She could not have felt less favored There was no leadership being offered from the religious officials, was there? The religious leaders of the day were tying up heavy burdens and placing them on people's backs. They couldn't even look to their faith leaders to offer them hope 
They were as bad as the Romans. <clears throat> and again, she's just a young girl from nowhere, not very favored, yet Gabriel declares to her that not only is she favored, but that she's the recipient of God's focused blessing and grace, and that the Lord Himself is with her, he says. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do you hear in that little statement the beginnings of the name of Jesus starting to unfold? as people start to contemplate what it means for God to be with us again. The temple, the glory had departed the temple back in Ezekiel 10 and 11. It's been gone for a long time. And now she's hearing, God is with you? God is with you, the angel says. Mary receives this blessing, the first hint of who Jesus really is, that he's Emmanuel, at a time when she felt like she had anything but the favor of the Lord with her. And I want us to consider how these words are applied to us even today when we believe on the name of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Do you know that when you turn to Christ in faith and repentance, and when you confess that you are a sinner and unable to save yourself, that you have fallen short of God's glory and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing you can do to be saved. When you humbly throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ, you hear these same words, greetings, the favor of the Lord is upon you and God is with you. This is the gospel and the greeting of Gabriel to Mary, to those who humbly throw themselves at the feet of Jesus as beloved children of God. We are the recipients of God's grace and unmerited favor, and we are those with whom God dwells. Isn't that wonderful to know that in spite of what we should be, recipients of God's wrath, those who have no business dwelling in the presence of God, that instead God in His mercy and abounding love gives Himself up for us, sends His Son for us, and pours out His favor and mercy upon us. God took on flesh and became man to die for sinful men. That's how the grace of God was poured out on the undeserving. And so it was for Mary. She was undeserving, lowly in a state, nothing special at all, yet God in His mere good pleasure and infinite love focused His favor on her, sent His angel to her, sent His Son into her womb just as He sends His Son into our hearts by faith. God exalts the humble and the undeserving, doesn't He? Doesn't it strike you then, if this is true, which it is, of course, Scripture says elsewhere, we were just in 1 Peter chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, that God exalts the humble and opposes the proud. If God exalts the humble and undeserving, doesn't it strike you as at least a little antithetical to the Bible's teaching when so many professing Christians try to be noteworthy? When we try to be somebody? Let me ask you, are you trying to be somebody? Trying to be noteworthy? Many in the church struggle with this. Pastors struggle with it. Celebrity platforms and social media followings and so forth. 
Men and women in the church struggle with this in their workplaces, in their communities, among their social circles, and with their friend groups. And I think perhaps especially teens and young adults and preteens, our college-age folks, many of you are home for Christmas right now and, and hearing this. I wonder if you're trying to be somebody, if you're trying to be noteworthy, to impress other people, or maybe even if you were honest with yourself, trying to impress God You want to be known. You want to be seen and heard and to receive the favor and applause and exaltation of men. Don't you see in this text how God doesn't need any of that at all? He doesn't need your fame or your acclaim. He doesn't need your platform or your following. He doesn't need you or me. Look at Mary God is the one who does the exalting of this humble young girl. She's a nobody from nowhere in the middle of a nothing area, and God is about to put in her womb the very Son of God to be born into the world. We don't present to Him our exalted state. He uses us in our humble estate. And I believe that this craving for attention and acclaim often comes from a fear of being unnoticed, or of being forgotten, or of being insignificant. Do you worry about being insignificant? Do you ever worry about being unnoticed? Are you afraid of being forgotten? It's impossible for the Christian to conclude that they're insignificant. Do you know that? God has sent His Spirit to dwell in you. He's made you in His image. He's adopted you as His child. He's given you an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. How much more significance can a person possibly have? I remember watching an interview with Tom Brady some years ago after he won his 14th Super Bowl or whatever. Oh. And uh, he was lamenting that there must be more to life than this, he says. I just can't help feeling, he says, that there's got to be more than this. And you think, you're kidding, right? You've won the highest levels of professional sports competitions multiple years at a time, the winningest professional football player in history. At the time, he was literally married to the world's leading supermodel. He had everything that perhaps a man could hope to have in a secular sense of the term, and yet he knew there's got to be something more. I still feel like I'm missing something. And the Christian doesn't struggle with that, does he, or does she? Because we have God dwelling with us and the Spirit of Christ living in us and the promises of the gospel given to us because of the birth of Jesus Christ? How can the Christian worry about being unnoticed or forgotten? Hasn't God already noticed your helpless estate and sent His Son to die for you and for your sins? Hasn't God promised that He will never leave or forsake you? How could He then forget you along the way? Christian, if you are in Christ, and you struggle with feelings of insignificance or fear of being forgotten or being of too humble an estate to be used by God, 
Look at Mary. She was nobody with nothing from nowhere. And God focused his favor on her. And how does she respond? From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Not because I have done great things. I often wonder if God would have sent Gabriel to Mary if she had been busy building her social media following. Would she have been able to hear God, or excuse me, Gabriel's words if she was known as the local town flirt or party girl or the most popular teen among her friend group? I sincerely doubt it. Don't try to exalt yourself in this life. Maybe young people, I'm speaking especially to you now, are teenagers and and those in your 20s. Be humble in heart. Humble before the Lord and before others. Humble in a state if that's what God calls you to. Jesus himself had nowhere to lay his head. Are we better than our master? Pursue humility so that when God exalts you, he receives all the glory. And know that God can use the humblest of means to accomplish the greatest of ends if he can use a virgin girl from Nazareth to bring forth his son into the world. And Jesus himself was humble, wasn't he? He wasn't much to look at. He didn't have a lot of friends. He had a lot of enemies and nothing to carry around on his back because he was without possessions. And he was from Nazareth, of all places. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? When you think that you're too insignificant or too small or weak or ordinary to be of any use to God, remember Mary. So how then should you respond to the shocking good news of Christmas with humility, like Mary, with humility? God not only exalts the humble, but this text also tells us that He is powerful and sovereign. God is the sovereign initiator of this entire affair, isn't He? Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. God started the conversation. He initiates the entire relationship with Mary, doesn't he? He's the one that starts it. He's the one that sends his angel to go find her and tells him where to go and who to find and what to say. Because God is the initiator in all our relationships with him. He's sovereign. He sets the stage. He, therefore, takes center stage. Look at verse 28. The angel says, the Lord is with you. God declares through Gabriel, his angel, that he has focused his favor on Mary, not at her invitation, but at his initiation. God sends, and then God speaks, and then God does, because he's the one that's in charge. He's sovereign over all these things, isn't he? And I think this is one of the most overlooked aspects of the virgin birth is its application for us today. Of course, what happens here 2,000 years ago with Mary and Gabriel and the Holy Spirit is a once-in-forever unique event, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But there's applicability to what God is doing and how He's doing it to us today. 
the fact that she could not have been pregnant by any other means implies that the Holy Spirit overshadowing, overshadowing her matters to us today because it's no different than us in salvation. It's no different than the way in which you and I experience salvation in Jesus Christ. We cannot possibly find ourselves full of the Holy Spirit and faith on our own. We cannot begin to experience forgiveness and regeneration and faith and salvation on our own. We have as much chance of saving ourselves as a virgin does being pregnant. That's the whole point. We cannot, you and I cannot save ourselves. We can't make faith in ourselves happen. We can't cause ourselves to love God. He is the sovereign initiator. It is His grace alone that grants faith alone in Christ alone unto salvation. There's huge applicability for us here. God is sovereign over the birth of Christ and over the new birth of each one of His subsequent children. There's nothing we can do to cause ourselves to be saved. God grants, according to His favor, the gift of faith that we might believe in His Son and be saved. God is sovereign, but He's not just sovereign, He's powerful. Look at verses 34 and 35. Mary asks one of the most obvious questions in Scripture. She does so from faith, and we're not going to spend time unpacking the contrast between her and Zechariah, but needless to say, she asks a reasonable question, doesn't she? Now, people who try to dismiss the virgin birth as a sort of, you know, this is just people from back in the day who didn't understand anything. You know, back then they were all superstitious. You know they knew how babies were made, right? Like Mary was not totally oblivious to what was about to happen when she got married to Joseph. And so when she asked this question, she's not asking a superstitious question like, oh, is this how babies are made? The Holy Spirit overshadows me? She knew what the process was. She had read Song of Songs. She asked a legitimate question because she was a virgin. And she says, Angel, how is this going to be? Because I am a virgin. And then Gabriel reminds her of the power of God. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how it's going to happen. It was the power of God to give new life where there was previously no life. Life in an empty womb. Life, in other words, in a womb that could not possibly have life in it. That's the power of God. The power of God to give life where there could not otherwise be life. And then he adds to this. Look at what the angel says in verse 36. Your old cousin, Elizabeth, uh, she is also pregnant. And by the way, uh, she's, this is the sixth month. So just to confirm that this is not Elizabeth kind of, you know, eating too many leftovers, 
she's six months pregnant now. It's obvious to everybody. There's no hiding it, and it's not a fluke. She's really and truly pregnant, and everybody knows it. Just to prove that God is this powerful, check out Elizabeth. You're a virgin. She's been barren her whole life and can't have children, and God can put life there too. She's pregnant by a miracle, just like Samson's mother just like Mary. Of course, not a virgin miracle, but a barren miracle. So in Mary, where no life could be, God gives life. And in Elizabeth, where previously death had reigned, God gives life. For years and years, death had reigned in her womb. No life could be made there. And yet God brings life. He brings life in places where there can't be any, and He brings life in places where only death reigns. Now look at verse 37. If there were a verse worth memorizing in this upcoming year, it's Luke 1, 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. This is a summary statement of our entire doctrine of God, isn't it? He is this powerful that nothing, far more than you could ask or even imagine, He is able to do those things. He can give life where it can't exist. He can give life where only death reigns. It may as well have been life on the moon or life at the center of Chernobyl, a place where life cannot be and a place where death has ruled for decades and decades. And this is how it is for us, friends. God is sovereign over our salvation. That is, He is the initiator of it. He sends His Son. He gives regeneration. He gives faith. He's even the one who does the dying and being raised from the dead for us. He saves sovereignly, but He's also powerful in our salvation. There is nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do for Christ to dwell in our heart apart from God's work, His powerful work in salvation. So let me ask you this. Do you truly believe That with God, nothing is impossible? Do you really believe that with God, nothing is impossible? A virgin birth, a barren birth, the salvation of dead sinners. Is there anything God can't do? He created the universe by speaking. Is there anything God can't do? I don't know what circumstances you may be presently going through, but don't go through life acting like God doesn't have a handle on it or that He can't do something about it. There's nothing that's impossible with God. Do you have a child that's wandered from the faith? Perhaps you've been praying for that child or or for a friend for many, 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 many years, and you think that nothing but death reigns in their heart, look at Elizabeth. 
With God, nothing is impossible. He can give life in a barren womb. He can bring life to a dead, hard, calloused, wandering heart. Do you think perhaps that your past seems too dirty to be washed clean by the all-sufficient blood of Jesus? There's no possible way God could save you if you only knew what I had done. Besides, even if He did, I've got nothing to offer. I'm a nobody. Look at Mary. That's exactly who God uses. People with nothing to offer but an empty womb. With nothing to commend about themselves but a description. That's who God uses. He exalts the humble. And so this text encourages us to respond to this shocking good news and humility. And He's powerful and sovereign to save, so it encourages us to look to Christ alone for our salvation. And that's the final point, isn't it? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Amidst all that we've said so far about Mary's humility and God's sovereignty and His power, let's not forget that this text, that Christmas, is ultimately about Jesus. He is the main character of the incarnation. What He came to do is the, is the thrust of the story. Look at verse 31 with me. He says, Mary, you found favor with God, and you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call His name Jesus. Of course, you know that the name Jesus means God saves. God saves. He saves sinners. In other words, Jesus saves sinners. This is the entire good news wrapped up in one little tiny sentence. You know, if you think back to Christmas's past some of you are going to have to think way back to when you were young. You remember perhaps with your siblings waking up in the morning and coming out to the family's room or the den or, or wherever your Christmas tree was, and, and you saw the presents uh, stacked or laid out underneath the tree and around the living room floor, perhaps in front of the fireplace, and immediately you began scanning them, and everyone's eyes at the same time landed on the same present. What present was it? The big one, the big present, and you knew in your heart of hearts that that was the best one. That's the best present. I, oh, there it is. And you start eyeballing your siblings, which one of us is going to get it? Who gets the big present? I hope it's not one of those shared presents where we all have to play with it together. <laughs> it's the big one. Everybody wants the big present. You know what I'm talking about. And you believed in your heart of hearts that that was the one. That was the one that cost the most money. It took the most wrapping paper. It was contained in the largest box. Clearly, it's the best one. But as you've gone through the years and many Christmases, those of you with a little bit more gray in your hair or in your beard will remember, sometimes it's the smallest little gift that you get that stays with you forever. That's the most special one, the most thoughtful gift, the littlest one that almost gets forgotten. It kind of slides under the tree skirt, and no one notices it until later. There's a little lump there. 
that's the one that the person who loves you dearly has put a lot of thought and effort and time into selecting that little one. And it becomes a cherished memory, maybe even small enough for you to fit in your pocket for the rest of your life. Sometimes it's the littlest gift that matters the most. And there are books upon books upon books that are written about the doctrine of the incarnation and shelves upon shelves upon shelves of volumes that have been written about God and salvation and libraries upon libraries upon libraries full of written material about all the doctrines we confess and the truths of God's Word and the things that we love about our God and Savior. And the most important is the smallest little gift Jesus saves sinners. That's who He is. And that's what He came to do. The very name of Jesus gives us a glimpse into the magnitude and majesty of His mission. He came to this earth to be born of a virgin, born into a manger, born in human flesh like a servant, that He might die the death that we deserve. That's how He saved us. You see, every child who is born will die. Every child who is born will die. But this child was born to die. Jesus saves and he does it by dying. He was born and he died to save us, to have the sins of his people forgiven and paid for, to save us at the cross. It doesn't, it's vital that this doesn't get lost in the midst of celebrating the birth of Jesus. Yes, we are filled with joy and celebration at the birth of Mary's son, but his birth and his name implies his pending death. A death he came to experience for us, his people. When we sing joy to the world, we aren't just singing about Jesus' birth, you know. It's easy with the familiarity of Christmas hymns to let the words just kind of pass over our lips without any thoughtful engagement. Think of what we say here. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. That's a statement of his death and exaltation. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. That's not a little baby lyric. That's a redemptive history lyric. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That's his entire life. And the wonders of his love, that's his vicarious death. The birth of Jesus Christ means the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High. DeWitt used the phrase in his introduction earlier, I love this, the cosmic calendar. This event is unique in all the cosmic calendar. Let me use that to say it this way. Christmas, then, because Jesus saves, is as much a gospel holiday as Easter is. Christmas is as much a gospel holiday as Easter is because Jesus was born to die, and He died to save. 
How do we respond then to the shocking good news of Christmas? Look at verse 38 one last time. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a response of total, humble submission to God's will. A response that we will see from her son, won't we? Lest you think this was an easy choice for her, submitting to God's will. It wasn't, the fanfare didn't begin right away, you know. Uh, Oh, the Son of God was born in Nazareth to Mary. I imagine that it was said far more like this. Oh, the Son of God was born to Mary. I mean, she probably didn't gain any popularity points among her friend group or with her in-laws or anybody else in her life because of this. In fact, saying yes to this, submitting to God's will was to experience the, the shame of having a son out of wedlock. It was, it was to experience the shame of having your fiancé threaten divorce because he didn't understand, which meant she would have been on the streets with a newborn as a teenager. To say yes to God in total submission meant that later in life her son would develop the reputation of being kind of crazy, and that even his siblings would hate his message and want to see him silenced. It meant that he would challenge the religious leaders of the day, which probably put her in a bit of danger herself. Imagine trying to go up and greet your beloved son whom you haven't seen in a couple months, and people start throwing rocks at him. Imagine people trying to chase him off a cliff and finding out his mom's there too. Eventually, saying, yes, let it be to me according to your word, I am the servant of the Lord, meant standing mere feet away as her son was nailed to a cross and raised up to die for our sins. Saying yes to God's will and humble submission is not easy, but it is always good. Mary responds the right way in absolute trust in God's sovereignty and plan, willingness to humbly submit to it, So how have you responded to Jesus' birth? How have you responded to the shocking good news of Jesus' birth? Indifference, perhaps? Mockery? Unbelief? Or outright rejection? Yeah, right. A virgin birth? So what? I don't need a Savior. I can't believe these Christians believe such fairy tales. I hate all this talk about Jesus at Christmas. Where's that big present? My dear friends, visitors here today who perhaps have never heard before the true meaning of Christmas, our young people home from college visiting, our high school students, young children who are here this morning, How have you responded to Jesus' birth? This Christmas, will you commit to living humbly before Him, to trusting Him and His sovereign power alone for your salvation, and submitting to His will and plan for your life, no matter how much it might cost you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we ask that you would Turn our hearts humbly towards Him, 
that he might receive all the glory, for he is sovereign and powerful, and he has come to save. It's in his name we pray. Amen.